Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I just wanted to tell you that the following interview originally appeared on Counterpoint with Jonathan Judakin, which is broadcast on WKNO-FM. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Counterpoint. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Preston Lauterbach's first book, The Chitlin Circuit, followed the back roads of the South in search of the origins of rock and roll. Now Lauterbach takes us into the back rooms of the Beale Street dynasty. The founder of that dynasty was Robert Church. Lauterbach writes of Church, Seemingly because of the white Memphis fixation on Negro shortcomings and the accompanying refusal to admit the white man's, Church avoided exposure. He had built a glorious park, established a grand theater, acquired swaths of valuable real estate, and gained control of local politics like no other colored man in the country. Now the Solvent Savings Bank stood as a monumental rejection of white racism. The foundation of that monument rested on the proceeds of Bob Church's brothels, on white men's moral failings. The book launch for Lauterbach's Beale Street Dynasty, Sex, Song, and the Struggle for the Soul of Memphis, will take place at Rhodes College on March 19th at 6 p.m. An opening reception at 5.30 will kick off the Beale Street Symposium, three days celebrating Beale. For more information about the symposium, check out the Rhodes College website. To launch this discussion, Preston Lauterbach is with me today on CounterPoint. Welcome, Preston. Thanks, Jonathan. Preston, it's great to have you back on CounterPoint because you are a raconteur of the dark alleys of our past. And to my ears, your voice as a writer captures something distinctive of the voice of Memphis history. To start us off, give us in short clip what you cover in Beale Street Dynasty. Well, it is the rise of the Robert Church family fortune. I came to know him as the South's first black millionaire. And so I wanted to get the truth behind how he built that fortune. So it follows everything from his activities in the underworld, developing the red light district of Memphis, to helping to develop the African-American business community on Beale Street, to his political connections, everything from the rise of Boss Crump to Robert Church Jr., the son of the dynasty's founder, who became quite probably the most influential and powerful African-American politician of the early 20th century. So it certainly covers a lot of grounds. And and a lot of the important events, you know, they didn't necessarily happen in the nicest of places. There's a lot of stuff that went down in saloons and gambling halls and brothels, you know. It was uh, some dirty business sometimes. You also explore a whole bunch of alleyways that end up coming out of that main street. I mean, it's also got stories about the origins of blues music, about Ida B. Wells, about other political figures. I mean, the whole orbit around Robert Church, which is, in fact, the history of Memphis from immediately after the Civil War until the 1940s, comes alive on the pages of this book. The influences in Ida B. Wells and and W.C. Handy... These were all, you know, absolutely critical developments in this Beale Street dynasty. It wasn't all vice and politics. It was culture, journalism, activism, 
tremendously vibrant little civilization that grew from our city blocks downtown in Memphis. So let's go back to where the story begins, Preston. Memphis, after the Civil War, saw free black soldiers roaming the streets and a white population seething with resentment at Northern Reconstruction. In 1866, this erupted into a race riot. What happened in the spring of 1866, almost exactly 150 years ago? Memphis was a rather unique circumstance in the South in that it was a, a Union-occupied city throughout much of the war. The city went over to Union control fairly early on in the war in 1862 in a brief naval conflict. That means the city was not destroyed or harmed. Contrast that with Richmond, which was practically burned to the ground, Atlanta, which was burned to the ground. Memphis was、uh, relatively physically intact after the war. Because of its openness, its, its Union status during the war, you had a lot of Union people who settled in Memphis. These came to be known as carpetbaggers and scalawags in the Southern press. They became influential over the war years in Memphis as school teachers, business leaders, publishers. They were involved in just about every facet of life. So you had a real unusual tension, a city that overwhelmingly had favored secession at the outbreak of the war, and a northern expat population. And during this time of Reconstruction, the, this, this great debate between these two sides was taking place. What is the South going to be after the Civil War? How is it going to be brought back into the Union? The tension between the Northern radical side that would have required a large federal presence in the South in order to ensure against any kind of an uprising or another secession taking place, and then you had the Southern people that, did, that wanted to be left alone. And this tension really played out on the streets of Memphis, where you had a big federal fort, Fort Pickering, which is down there, where the National Ornamental Metal Museum is today. And then you had a local police force, which was made up largely of、uh, former Confederate soldiers. So you had, during that spring of 1866, when people were debating what Reconstruction was going to be like, what kind of rights African Americans were going to have. You had patrols of black soldiers coming out of the fort into the streets of the city. In some cases, these were former slaves, you know, who had been in bondage in the city. At the same time, you had a city police force made up of men who had fought in the war to preserve the Southern way of life, to defend slavery, to defend the Southern independence. So this didn't go very well. Having these two armed bands of angry people. Eventually erupted into conflict, and for the first few days of May in 1866, a largely one-sided battle was fought between the police and rabble rousers and African American citizens of Memphis, resulting in a very one-sided bloodbath. Forty-six African American deaths, two white deaths, which some sources have attributed to friendly fire. And a whole lot of reported cases of rapes, property fires, arson. I mean, it was absolute chaos. It was blood in the streets of Memphis for those few days in spring 1866. That's kind of the opening of where the story begins. Now, Preston, listeners can go and visit the Pink Palace Museum, where, in particular, they should check out the exhibit "Historic Black Memphians." But if they want the displays of the Pink Palace to come alive, they really should read your book. And there, they'll get a sense of who some of the key figures were and some of the backstory behind these folks. Now, orbiting around Robert Church were some of the marvelous characters who made Memphis. Can we zero in on two of them in this immediate post-Civil War period? And you tell us a little bit about Church's relationship with them first. 
David Park Haddon. He was known as Pappy Haddon. And then the inimitable Ida B. Wells. Pappy Haddon had an unusual amount of political power after the yellow fever struck Memphis in the late 1870s. The, the regular form of government with the mayor and the council was abolished. The whole political structure of Memphis was erased. The city lost its charter and uh, was replaced with this very streamlined, some would say dictatorial form of government known as a taxing district, which had a president. So Pappy Haddon was the president of Memphis for about eight years, from the early 1880s until the early 1890s. Haddon was an extremely colorful, almost Shakespearean-type figure, had a, a flair for dress, a flair for language. He was a Democrat, which was the predominant party in the South, but was very liberal towards African-Americans. And during that yellow fever period, he, I think, gained an appreciation for the African-American citizens of Memphis, many of whom stayed while a lot of the white citizens fled the city and really took care of the city's property, protected the citizens that stayed behind, helped to administer medicine and deliver food and to just keep the whole city afloat during that crisis period. Hadn't really appreciated this, and so when he rose to power after the fever, he respected and appreciated African-American citizens, and it was really through his openness and, and rather liberal frame of mind that African-Americans enjoyed a, a station of power in Memphis that they really did not have in other parts of the South. There were African-American council people, county attorneys, elected officials, in other words. You just didn't see that after Reconstruction in the South. Hadn't also helped to prime the ground for Robert Church's fortune in that Haddon had a very liberal attitude towards prostitution. Brothels are how Robert Church initially built his fortune as the South's first black millionaire. Can you tell us a little bit about why Pappy Haddon might have been so liberal towards prostitution? Wasn't it, in fact, connected to the ways in which he came to refinance the rebuilding of Memphis after the yellow fever epidemic? I should say it wasn't just Haddon. The, the city had had a long reputation of being a, a wide open place by the 1880s during the Civil War. You know, it was well noted for its brothels. 1870, the city council voted to license prostitution and gambling. So, Jonathan, if you had wanted to open your own brothel back in Memphis in 1870, you need only apply to the city council and provide a nominal fee, and, and you could have done so more or less legally from that point. Prostitution was both a legal and cultural custom that was popular in the city, so it wasn't necessarily, you know, that abnormal or, or even illegal for uh, an entrepreneur to become involved in that business. After the fever, when there wasn't a whole heck of a lot of business being done in Memphis and there was not a lot of revenue flowing into the city, Haddon took an even more liberal attitude towards the practice because it provided some economic stimulation in the forms of licenses, taxes, an enticement, I think, for people to come and visit the city. Uh, it, was, it was looked at as basically a positive thing. You know, he was about streaming finances to fix Memphis. After the fever, there was greater attention paid to the water supply, the streets, the sewer system, basic public works. There was no money to fix any of these things. Vice materialized as a very reliable source of, of finances. And so I think that's what appealed to, to Pappy Haddon about it. One of the first great muckraking journalists who strode those downtown streets and that were connected to Robert Church was Ida B. Wells. Tell us a little bit about her development coming up from Mississippi and coming of age near Beale Street and, and what her role was in the city and her relationship to church. 
she is one of the characters that embodies how extraordinary Memphis was during this time period. Because you have an African-American and a female who became an outspoken and, and well-recognized militant. Well, nobody in the 19th century South wanted African-Americans or females to be militant or speaking out. But that's exactly what she did. And she became a national icon for it. And coming to this project, writing a book about Beale Street, I knew the greatest hits. I knew Boss Crump was in there somewhere. I knew W.C. Handy was in there somewhere. I knew Ida B. Wells was in there somewhere. I didn't know necessarily, particularly in Wells' case, that Beale Street is what made her. Her experience in Memphis allowed her to become this outspoken militant journalist who went on to lead the first really high-profile anti-lynching campaign in the United States, who was one of the founding signatories of the NAACP. But she came to Memphis in uh, the 1880s, following the yellow fever. She was from Holly Springs, Mississippi, which you know is just right down Highway 78, not too far away. But both of her parents perished in the fever. And so she was left with, I believe, an aunt and some siblings who had survived. And they felt that it was their best shot to survive in the city. So she came up, got a job teaching. I believe she was in her late teens, or early 20s, when she made the trip, but was taking care of, uh, of her siblings. And she got into journalism because, uh, again, another really extraordinary thing about Beale Street during this time period, but it was the bastion of African-American journalism for Memphis. There was a black-owned printing press that was associated with the Beale Street Baptist Church. There were a couple of Baptist-affiliated newspapers that Wells began writing for. These articles circulated via wire to other African-American publications published throughout the country. And so little by little, she gained this reputation as a, as a correspondent from Memphis. And she had pointed things to say in her columns about race issues. She was a moral woman. She didn't like all of these saloons, and she didn't approve of gambling. And she wanted African-American people to be thrifty and sober and church-going. And she saw that as the cure for racial ills. She thought that you know, they would have more solid, healthy, whole communities and get more respect from white people if if they were more responsible. Criticized, you know, people that hung out at picnics. That's the way people socialized back then. Go to a picnic and, you know, have something to drink and listen to a band. She criticized people who use snuff, people who drink whiskey. She was against all of these things. But little by little, you know, she broadened her perspective. She began to, through her writing, exert pressure on people like Robert Church, who up until the 1880s had not really distinguished himself as a civil rights race-oriented leader. He was a good businessman, very gifted in, in the public relations department, but really had not taken any major stands for his people. She started in her, her columns to question the way that African-American leaders should support the race issue, the race problems in the country. And I believe that it really got through to Church. I believe that it changed him. Because he started to, uh, along the, the mid-1880s and into the 1890s, to take a more definitive stance, a more controversial stance for his people. And he became involved supporting the career of Ida B. Wells. The big turning point in her career is when she begins to speak out against lynching, in particular in the aftermath of the lynching of three African Americans who were involved with the people's grocery I'm going to skip over that episode, but that really galvanizes her and makes her an international figure. Preston, you write of her with Ida B. Wells, Beale Street made its first great contribution to the world. 
Now, Wells had an important ally in New York, and this was Robert Church's daughter, Mary Church Terrell. And you note of them, history would reunite them over the coming years, most notably in 1909, when they'd be the only females of color to form the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. 1909 is a crossroads in your story, since that was the year the mayoral election brought about a pair of historic breakthroughs, the beginning of the Crump dynasty and the birth of the blues. Let's just quickly listen to a lick of W.C. Handy's Mr. Crump Blues, and then you tell us about the story behind the song that brought together the Crump dynasty and the birth of blues music. You want to be my man, you got to give me $40 down. You want to be my man, you got to give me $40 down. Don't be my man, your baby's going to leave this town. Well, Mr. Crump don't allow no easy riders yet. Mr. Crump don't allow no easy riders yeah. We don't care what Mr. Crump don't allow. We go to Bell House anyhow. Mr. Crump won't allow it. Ain't gonna have it yet. Tell us that story now, Preston. This is just the the beauty of how culture, politics, Vice and music are intertwined in Memphis's history to distinguish it from other places and to really highlight its importance to American culture because this is what gave us blues music, the foundation of American popular music. In 1909, there was a mayoral race, three-way race. The candidates all hired bandsmen from Beale Street in order to go out and, uh, you know, do stump concerts and to, to try and scare up political support among African-American voters, which, by the way, was a very crucial constituency in Memphis politics during that time. Most of the, the political organization and political support for candidates came about through the saloon business. Saloon keepers needed political support in order to run their establishments as they wanted to, include a little bit of gambling if they wanted to, stay open all night if they wanted to. The state, anyway, was flirting with prohibition at the time. They wanted to be protected from that. So a lot of the political organization at grassroots had to come through the saloon keepers. There was one saloon keeper known as Jim Mulcahy who ran a place called the Blue Heaven. And this band leader, Handy, was was hanging around the Blue Heaven, and Mulcahy decided that he was going to put in for candidate Crump, E.H. Crump, in the 1909 mayor's race. Mulcahy recruited W.C. Handy to the Crump campaign. And from there, Handy composed the theme song for the Crump campaign. It was initially called Mr. Crump or Mr. Crump Don't Like It, and gained fame as the Memphis Blues. So E.H. Crump comes to dominate Memphis politics. He's only the mayor for a short period of time, but then he ends up building a political machine that really dominates Memphis politics, Shelby County politics, Tennessee politics, and was important on a national stage. If you're just tuning in, I'm Jonathan Judakin, and you're listening to CounterPoint. I'm speaking with Preston Lauterbach, whose latest book, Beale Street Dynasty, will have its launch on March 19th at 6 p.m. at Rhodes College. And when he died in 1912... Robert Church, in your words, Preston, bestowed upon his son, Bob Church Jr., the mantle of Black Boss of Beale Street. But Bob Church was quite different from his father in his upbringing and in his vocation. 
which led Junior to play a leading role in Republican politics nationally and black politics locally through the creation of the Lincoln League. Tell us about the Lincoln League and Bob Jr.'s impact on Republican politics. The Lincoln League started on Beale Street in the church auditorium. It was organized to show the collective strength of black voters. And it ended up numbering in the thousands. So it was quite an impressive display of black voting power at that time. Church built on this Lincoln League concept. He organized it much like Mr. Crump organized the Crump machine in that he had people in charge of every neighborhood, of every block in every neighborhood, had everybody encouraging them to register. So you look at all of the hell that civil rights activists went through to register African-American voters in the in the 1960s in the South. That's what Bob Church was doing in Memphis in the 19-teens before World War One. He built up on this concept and eventually became the leader of the Republican Party in uh, at least the western half of Tennessee and really pulled off quite a stunning accomplishment in the 1920 presidential election. Tennessee, of course, had been part of the Confederacy in the Civil War, and by 1920, none of the former Confederate states since the time of Reconstruction had pulled for the, the Republican Party in a presidential election. The Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. It was the party that had virtually 100% African-American support, almost the exact reverse of the party identities today when you think about where African-Americans tend to put their voting support. But back then, it was, it was the Republican Party. That was the ship and all else was the sea, according to Frederick Douglass. Church pulled off something really tremendous in the 1920 election. The candidate was Warren G. Harding. But with Church's organizational ability... For the very first time since Reconstruction, one of the former Confederate states went for a Republican candidate in a presidential election. That was uh, Tennessee for Harding with the boss of Beale Street behind it. He, from there, became the key patronage dispenser. That means that all federal jobs in Memphis throughout West Tennessee went through Mr. Church. This meant that everything from federal circuit court judge, district attorney, on down to postman had to have Mr. Church's approval. So this was an incredibly powerful tool that he as a Republican and Mr. Crump as a Democrat, it really helped to balance the two of them out. Mr. Crump had to respect Mr. Church's federal authority because Crump was a Democrat. Republicans throughout the 1920s had the presidency. And Crump had a healthy respect of federal power. As a local machine boss, nobody in, in the county or in the city was going to challenge Mr. Crump's power. But at the federal level, he could have real trouble. So he needed to align with church. And so the two of them together made for, you know, as they say, strange bedfellows, the black Republican and the white Democrat boss. But during the 1920s in Memphis, I mean, it was a real unusually progressive situation in politics because of this power that, that Robert Church wielded at the federal level. But also, over time, they end up coming into conflict. That ends up marking the decline of the Church dynasty. We'll get there in one second, but I want you to explain something that you give an account of in the course of the book, because you've just reminded us that it's the Republican Party that was the party of Lincoln and abolition and Reconstruction. And unless we remember that, it's easy to be a bit baffled by the longstanding <laughs> yes. support of a figure like, like Robert Church Jr. for the Republican Party. Now, Part of what you provide an account of is how this ended up changing. You say at one point that during Herbert Hoover's presidency, 
the leadership purge left church as the lost black Republican leader standing. And in part, this was because of the rise of lily white Republicans who actively purged them from the party. Tell us how Bob Church's relationship with Republicans were impacted by these changes in the 1930s. And if you can connect this ebb to local history, all the better. Was there a specific instance of that that you had in mind? The experience of lily white Republicans. Who were they? Why were they lily white Republicans? Why did they want to purge the party of black leaders and of black support? You know, despite the fact that African-Americans affiliated themselves with the, the Republican Party, you know, due to the, the history, Abraham Lincoln and emancipation, that was the reason for African-American loyalty to the party initially, and it was fostered throughout Reconstruction. The Republican Party was much more supportive of black freedom, whether it be voting, civil rights, or political office. The Republican Party was really there for African-Americans throughout that dark time. Nevertheless, there was an element of the Republican Party. And this is throughout Church Jr.'s rise to power, throughout the teens, throughout the 20s, throughout the 30s. He had to fight for party recognition at every level. So you had a group of Republicans in Shelby County that believed that African Americans had no place in the party. They didn't want to recognize African Americans. And and this became known as the Lily White faction. That is pure white no mixture, no African-American presence. Church had to fight at the county level against Shelby County Lily Whites for recognition as the official Shelby County Republican faction. Had to fight at the state level for the exact same. And when it came to the national conventions, he had to fight at the national convention in order to be recognized as the official delegate, the official representation of the Republican Party from Shelby County or West Tennessee, however they put it. So this was an ongoing struggle. It's always a conversation between African-American leaders and white leaders. And during the 20s, you had white leaders that were just a little bit more sensitive to powerful African-Americans like church that were a little bit more welcoming of that participation. But by the time of the Hoover candidacy in 28, he went through and purged all of the African-American Republican organizations from the South. As I said, 1920 was the first time that a southern state had gone for the Republican Party. Well, by 1928, Hoover saw an opportunity to win the whole South. Previously, you know, that had not been thought of as possible. What he thought this required, however, was to purge the black influence from the Republican Party down south. And so that's a process that began either through denying groups in the south official recognition, in some cases led to ethics investigations of African-American party leaders down south. So there were a number of, you know, what you would just call dirty tricks associated with getting rid of black leaders down south. Church had enough money, influence, and political wealth, I guess you'd say, to avoid the purge. This meant that he was the last black leader of the GOP in the South in the 1930s. Now, the last chapter of your book is aptly titled, This is a White Man's Country. And the final scene of your book is how Robert Church's house was burned to the ground. Tell us what you wrote on the final page. Not 50 years before, the house had been the pride of the city, a monument to what a black man could accomplish in Memphis. Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington had graced its foyer. The firemen torched the rooms that NAACP officials had used as their secret headquarters for an undercover investigation of tenant farming. As L. Raymond Lyman said it, 
We didn't have many three-story houses then. It wasn't just the house, it was what the house represented. To me, it was almost a lynching of the Negroes of Memphis. They burned his house to the ground. Preston, how did the church mansion come to be burned to the ground? That occurred in 1953. Church Jr. had died in 1952 after being more or less banished from the city in 1940. So he lived out his days in Chicago and Washington, D.C., you know, continually influential in Republican politics, if you could say that, during the Roosevelt and Truman years. So he passed in 52. His old family home and all of his property had been seized from him back in 19, late 30s and in 1940. And so his beautiful family home, which his father had built in the 1880s, big three-story Victorian mansion, number of rooms, about 20 rooms, had been turned into a boarding house, if you can believe that. Boarding house, I think, eventually fell into arrears and was foreclosed on. And in 1953, there was a convention of firemen and safety officers that came to Memphis. And there was a sort of a trade show where there were these new firefighting products to be demonstrated. And somehow or another, you know, the city notified whoever was holding this demonstration. Yeah, you know, there's an old house in uh, South Memphis that you can you can burn down and you can demonstrate your fire safety equipment on. And so that's what happened. It was a day, I believe, in February or March, hundreds of people outside of the old church mansion, many of the members of this fire safety convention, watched as the place was set on fire and parts of the fire were then put out as a way to demonstrate this various fire safety equipment that was being shown. But that was, that was it. It was little by little burned down in this, this huge public spectacle. And it is just such a powerful anecdote bringing to an end this amazing story that you've been telling. Preston, my last question is about how you put together this narrative, because part of what makes it so entertaining is that you show that every political venture and progressive cause in Memphis, black and white, was quilted to prostitution and gambling and corruption, sometimes to outright thuggery and murder. Do you tell this story in this way because this is the way that it happened or because it's just entertaining or are you really trying to sort of make a larger point by establishing these connections because part of the message that you want readers to take away from Beale Street Dynasty is that sometimes our more hallowed virtues are in fact yoke to vice. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. No, you know, I don't have any any kind of agenda or motives with that stuff. As I said, I came to the project with just the broadest of questions. Well, how did Beale Street become Beale Street? How did church become the South's first black millionaire? Well, you can't answer that question honestly without saying, oh, he had this strip of, you know, highly successful celebrated brothels. That helped. He ran these gambling saloons. That helped. It's important also, I think, to understand the moral context for some of these activities that took place and how different the world was. As I said, you know, it was not illegal or all that immoral by the standards of the day to run brothels because the city council permitted it. The law looked the other way. It was conducted very openly. I mean, there was nothing hidden about the underworld. I mean, the underworld was not under anything. It was, it was right there for everybody to see. We also have to keep in mind, with regard to race, how the history of race in the South led to and supported a very skewed morality. You're an ambitious African-American man in the 1880s. 
You have plans. You have ideas. You know, you can't go to a, an Ivy League school and become a bank president. You know, your avenues to education and prosperity are very, very limited. And those circumstances led individuals like Robert Church to cut their own path. So I think it's important to keep in mind the broader context for why some of these, you know, amoral and, and shady activities took place. It was a morally skewed universe, so we can't just look at these morally skewed activities and say, tisk tisk, you know, we have to understand why they happened. How was the crump machine built? Well, it was built through vote bundling and through ballot box stealing and through the purchase of votes. So just in trying to answer the most innocent of questions, found the dirtiest of details. So, no, my top motive is to, to tell it like it was. If that happens to be entertaining, then, yeah, so be it. But I do, in fact, have an agenda to make history entertaining. I love history. I want other people to love history. I think too often there's a unfair association of history with basic facts that some consider dry and boring. And really, I mean, the texture of these kinds of stories, the texture of history is fun. It's exciting. I firmly believe that these characters were enjoying themselves, having fun doing what they did. I mean, these plans that you see unfolding over Beale Street's history are, you know, audacious and well thought out. And so, sure, I mean, it's important to me to transmit that. There are so many other subterranean stories that percolate up through the course of this. You tell this all through a series of vignettes, and not only do you make it entertaining, I've read a number of histories of Memphis. You make it really memorable. And so thank you so much for sharing these stories with us today on CounterPoint. It's really my pleasure. Well, we certainly look forward to digging deeper into this history on March 19th at 6 p.m. with the official book launch, Beale Street Dynasty, Sex, Song, and the Struggle for the Soul of Memphis at Rhodes College, where you'll be signing the book. It kicks off the Beale Street Symposium with more Beale history on March 20th a concert at the historic Daisy with Calvin Newborn that evening, and then a not-to-be-missed walking tour with Preston Lauderback and others on March 21st. Check the Rhodes website for more information about the Beale Street Symposium. Thanks, Jonathan. Putting a spotlight on the role of scholars, academics, and intellectuals, and how their work illuminates the issues we face locally and globally, CounterPoint is a monthly broadcast on WKNO-FM. To listen to the show in its entirety, visit WKNOFM.org and click on the news menu item where you'll find a link to CounterPoint. You can podcast CounterPoint by visiting iTunes and searching for WKNO CounterPoint. CounterPoint is a production of WKNO-FM in association with the Spence L. Wilson Chair in Humanities at Rhodes College. Justin Willingham produces the show. I'm Jonathan Judakin. Thanks for listening.